energy. Can we all just admit that I was right about Mac Jones from the start? He's good. He's not great. And they have made him worse by what they have done to him this year. The passion. This UVM team is the most athletic team I can remember in the eight years I've been covering them. They're that fast. They're that quick. They're that bouncy. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Craig Breslow might be great. But he's got to start spending money. I think he's going to, but he better start soon. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We're up until 645 today. Then it is high school basketball. we got our guy Brent Curtis on the call, U32 and Lamoille. Boys game had the girls game last night. Boys version tonight. Brent on the call. At 6.45. Tom Karen of Nesson is going to stop by at about 6.05 today. Talk Red Sox, the move to get rid of Sale, to acquire Vaughn Grissom, to get Lucas Giolito. We will talk about all of that with TC at about 6.05. You can get in on the text line, 802-585-3026. That is the text line. That is your voice to get into the show. I am here. Danny is here. You are here. Danny, let go. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. Also, Rouse's Point, New York. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Danny, as you can see right now, I am doing the show in a way that I never do the show. I never, ever do the show this way, but I'm doing it this way today. I am doing the show while standing up. I don't, I couldn't tell you the last time I did a show standing up, but here we are today. I had to change up the energy. Had to, had to do something a little bit different. Gotta tell you, I always prefer sitting down for a couple of reasons, right? One is just generally more comfortable to sit than stand, especially when we were doing this show for 90 minutes and the previous show for 90 minutes. Um, it's generally more comfortable to, to sit than stand. Also, we always do the show on video. Today we're not doing the video, so I don't have to be situated right in front of a camera and I can kind of maneuver around. But usually when the show is on, uh, when we're streaming the show on Facebook Live again, which we're not doing today, but we will do again later this week, don't have an ability to do that. But today I'm doing the show standing up. My old boss, when I first started in Albany, did every single show standing up. Like, he was just constantly swaying and bouncing as he was talking. I had no idea how he did. I was tired watching him. I was tired looking at him do the show. He stood up every single show, and that was a four-hour show. Like, they were on from, like, 3 until 7. He stood every minute of it, and I didn't know how he did it. I like to do the show. I like to stand up when we are doing the show, like, out on location, which I haven't done yet, actually, since getting to DEV. When I'm on location, I like standing up, but – uh you know, today I'm switching up the energy. I just, my, my back is sore. My chair is squeaking. I got to switch it up a little bit. So we're off and running here. I'm in a different position. It's, it's very odd feeling, but it feels kind of good, at least for a little while. So 802-585-3026. TC at 605. UVM hoops with a big win over Brown yesterday by a point. We'll talk about that. What John Becker, O'Leary, Iofalier, what they had to say after the 71 to 70 win. I want to start here with the New England Patriots, though. Interesting stuff here as we approach week 18, right? Last week of the regular season, Patriots are 4-12. and 12. There's a lot that's going into this week. What does this week mean, if anything, for Belichick's future? What does it mean, if anything, for Zappi's future? What does it mean 
in terms of how Robert Kraft views things. What does it mean as far as the Patriots' draft position? Is Matthew Slater going to retire? There's a lot of things that are going into what is generally regarded as a relatively meaningless game here, at least in terms of the standings, but it's not meaningless for a lot of members of the Patriots and for the future of this organization. As we understand it right now, Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick are scheduled to meet at the end of the season. That is not new news. They do this every single year. Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal, Danny, has an indication of how at least Bill Belichick is going to handle that meeting. Well, what I've been told by, you know, people who know Bill and know the particulars in this, that that number one, Robert Kraft is conflicted. Like he doesn't want to have to make this decision. The other thing is, is that they expect Bill Bill knows, and we've heard reports, including Mike Giardi at BSJ, who have who've said that Bill has told people close to him that he's un, he knows that his future here is cloudy at best. People close to Bill say that he is going to go in on the offensive, that he's going to have a game plan, knowing that Kraft is probably going to talk about you know an elegant solution, and what's Bill going to offer. So Bill Belichick is going to go in on the offensive, 802-585-3026. There's a few different things I want to know that we're going to talk about here. One, if you are Bill Belichick, what are you saying? What is going on the offensive mean? How are you attacking this conversation with Robert Kraft? That's number one. Number two, why is Robert Kraft conflicted? You may think that it's an easy answer, but I actually don't think it's all that easy of an answer. Those are the two things that I really want to know right now number one what does bill belichick say as part of being on the offensive and number two why is robert Kraft conflicted let me start with number two first because i think it's a a little more nuanced and i got to expand on a couple things here so let me start there the easy answer is robert Kraft is conflicted because he doesn't want to have to get rid of the greatest coach in nfl history right that's the easy answer But I would counter that and go, he allowed Tom Brady to walk out the door. I can promise you, right? I would, I would bet my future house on it that Robert Kraft cares more about Tom Brady than Bill Belichick. That Tom Brady means more to Robert Kraft than Bill Belichick does. We have heard Robert Kraft say that he views Tom Brady like a son. I have never heard him say that about Bill Belichick. It's been very clear to me that though Robert Kraft has benefited from Bill Belichick and though he appreciates him and though he understands that a lot of Robert Kraft's wealth comes from Bill Belichick's accomplishments, he's never, it's always been a business relationship. Okay. Tom Brady was a personal relationship. If you weren't conflicted at letting Tom Brady go, if you weren't conflicted at letting Tom Brady's contract situation to what it was, if that didn't bother you, if that didn't irk you, if that didn't irritate you, then why is it that the Bill Belichick situation is conflicting you so much? For me, there's only one answer to this. Robert Kraft cares very deeply about how he's perceived. Right, That can be the only answer here, because from a personal standpoint, if it didn't bother him when Brady was let go, it can't bother him when Belichick's going to be potentially let go. The only thing that can matter here is Robert Kraft's ego. He's got to be worried 
about how he's going to be viewed. Robert Kraft was the guy who pushed Bill Parcells out the door. Robert Kraft doesn't want to be the guy who pushes Bill Belichick out the door. Robert Kraft is eventually going to go to the Hall of Fame, and he doesn't want on his resume that he let Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, two of the greatest five coaches of all time, he doesn't want to be the guy that ran both of those guys out of town. That can be the only thing that has Robert Kraft conflicted as far as I'm concerned, or the only reason that he's conflicted. I don't think that Robert Kraft is conflicted because he may have to let a football coach go. He's conflicted because he may have to let a football coach go. That affects how he is viewed. I think it's an entirely selfish reason why Robert Kraft would be conflicted. Again, if he's willing to let a guy who he views like a son go and not feel that guilty about it, he's not going to feel guilty about letting uh, about letting a coach who he doesn't view that way go. The only reason he could be feeling this way has to be for selfish reasons. 802-585-3026. Tex says, I doubt that Bill is leaving on Brady. Kraft also let him go. Yes, Tex says, yes, yes, yes. What is Kraft confused on? Um, Yeah, it's got to be that. It's got to be the selfish legacy part of it. Let's move to the other part of the question. If you are Bill Belichick... And you hear, as Greg Bedard says, you're going on the offensive. What does that entail? I got to tell you, I know what it entails. But I have a really hard time believing that Bill Belichick's really going to go on the offensive. Because I think that Bill Belichick is too proud to fully sing for his job, and potentially get told no anyways. I have a hard time believing that Bill Belichick is going to go in and say, look. Because look, I know what I would say, right? If you don't want to get fired, if you want your job that badly, here's what you say. Robert, I have worked for you for nearly 25 years. I am, in part, the reason or one of the main two reasons why you have the life, the quality of life, and the business that you do. Your business was built in large part on my hard work, on my sweat equity, on my accomplishments, right? We did it as part of a team, but I was the guy as the leader of it, okay? Everything you have, you owe to me and Tom Brady. Everything you have, you owe to us, okay? I have worked tirelessly for you. I have elevated your brand. I have made you rich. I have popularized popularized the the New England Patriots. I have made us a worldwide brand. I have six Super Bowl rings. I have, what, nine Super Bowl appearances here. I have taken this franchise to unprecedented heights. Okay, That's going on the offensive. Let me tell you all the things that I've already done. And by the way, let me tell you the things that I plan on doing in the future. Yes, I went through a period of time here where we didn't get it done. If I'm Bill Belichick, I'm going on the offensive. I'm also taking responsibility. I would have to do that. Okay? I put us in a position with our coaching staff 
that didn't develop our players the best. I did not, I did not give us the best chance to win the last few years. That said, I understand where the game is. I understand where the game is going. I am still the very best game coach in the NFL. I am still the very best at preparation in the NFL. I still have a great eye for talent. I know what works in this league. I know what worked in 1970, what worked in 1980, what worked in 1990, what worked in 2000, what worked in 2010, and what worked in 2020 as well. If I am Bill Belichick, that is what I am saying if I'm going on the offensive. I have a hard time believe, though, that Bill Belichick is going to do that. Bill Belichick may very well want this job still. Bill Belichick may very well want to stay living in Foxborough. He very well may want to stay coaching football for the New England Patriots. He may not want to go anywhere else. I cannot see, I'm not saying he won't, but I cannot see him singing for his supper. Look at people who sing for their supper, right? Think about the position that you are in, the position that I would be in. I, if WDEV was going to fire me tomorrow, and I was going to go on the offensive, I would be desperate, right? I would have to say those things. I would have to beg for my job, okay? I'd have to be groveling for my job. Why? I am desperate. I can't afford to not have a paycheck. I don't want to move, so I don't have other options. I have to say what they want to hear, and I have to fight like hell to keep my job. Bill Belichick doesn't have to do that. And because he doesn't have to do that, it's why I have a hard time believing that he will. Right? I just gave you the playbook of what to say. I've dominated for you for almost 25 years. I am in part the reason why you are as successful as you are. I am in part the reason why our brand is as big as it is. I've done it before. I can do it again. Yes, I did screw up, but I know what it takes. I have a plan. That's the playbook. But Bill Belichick is not desperate. Bill Belichick has options. Bill Belichick has plenty of money. This is not, he's not financially screwed like you or I would be if we were about to lose our job. Pete's not. Look, Bill Belichick is no longer with his partner in a relationship, so he doesn't have a family aspect that is tethering him to the area. His sons are on his coaching staff. If he wants to continue to work and be around his sons, I imagine the new organization would gladly take his sons as the coach, so he would still have a great family aspect wherever he went. And there's probably five teams that are going to have openings that would all give Bill Belichick an interview and would all hire him. So I don't understand why Bill Belichick would need to go on the offensive. I gave you the playbook. If he's going to, that's what you say. But he doesn't need it. You and I, we have to beg. We're desperate. We can't afford to lose the paycheck. We can't afford to take kids out of school. We can't afford to, to, to lose living in this place. Bill Belichick can. He knows the business. He's moved around a bunch before. He doesn't need to beg for his job. I spoke to Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio about this earlier. That interview is going to be available on our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts. Spotify and WDEVradio.com after the show. I asked him, I said, Freddie, if you're going on the offensive, how does it sound? If I'm Bill Belichick, I'm using every available from what they had happened in the past, what they were, the kind of organization that people have to deal with in the conference championship or for the Super Bowl in the National Football League. If anything, you shouldn't have to beg for your job when you're Bill Belichick and you're building that kind of equity. 
So if you're going to go into the offensive, you can rob a craft and say, okay, who are you going to bring in? That's going to be better than me to turn this around. If that person is out there, then you know you should go get that person. But you and I both know that person is not out there right now that's going to leave an NFL team to come here or that you can bring up somebody from college. That would be the offensive maneuver I would use on Bill Belichick to try to save my job and be around in 2024. There you go. It's Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio. A bunch of texts coming in. Peter over in Williston. I'd have guessed that Belichick said much the same when he convinced Kraft to let Tom Brady walk, saying, I've got a plan. It may be a hollow argument for him to keep his gig going in Foxborough. Interesting perspective there from Peter. Tech says, why would Belichick want to go through this? I don't think that he will. That's my perspective. Doesn't mean that he won't. But when you've been married to somebody for 25 years and they say they want a divorce and the kids are already out of the house and you know you've got other options, I don't know. Do you have to really go and fight to save the marriage? My guess would be no. Glenn and Brookfield, great job with – Thoughts on Bill and Robert. On another note, if you're standing up, those must be high ceilings. They are. Uh, Jerry Jones has gotten rid of Tom Landry, Bill Parcells, and Jimmy Johnson. He's in the Hall of Fame. Maybe so. I still think Robert Kraft cares about how he's perceived. He would have to. Let's stick with the Patriots. Let's get to Bailey Zappi. Bailey Zappi doesn't sound real thrilled about the idea of the Patriots drafting a quarterback next year. Does he have a right to be as upset as he sounds? We'll discuss that next on BEV. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. New England Patriots quarterback Bailey Zappi, he will start the final game of the year against the Jets. You just heard the promo coming up, pregame show, 10 a.m. on Sunday. The kickoff is at 1. Zappi clearly sounds like a guy who believes he deserves an opportunity to be the New England Patriots starter in 2024. Zappi was on WEI in Boston yesterday and was asked, how would you feel – if the Patriots drafted a quarterback in the first round, Danny? I mean, if that's what, uh, you know, they decide to do, that's what they decide to do. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to competing against whoever comes in here for that job. Um, I'm going to do the same thing I've, you know, I did last offseason, get ready to be the guy. And um, if my name's called, then, you know, I'm going to do the best thing I can to help the team win. And hopefully it is. And hopefully we get after it next year or whenever it is. But um, I don't want to skip over these guys that we're playing this Sunday. Not heard of that was before Zappy gave an answer, he had about a three-second pause in which he kind of was like, uh, well, if that's what they want to do, then that's what they're going to do. He doesn't sound real happy about the idea of the Patriots drafting a quarterback. Again, he clearly thinks he has done enough to earn the first right refusal here. He thinks he has done enough to be the guy that the Patriots turn to. He didn't want to hear about competition. He doesn't want to hear about Mac. He doesn't want to hear about drafting quarterbacks. He doesn't want to hear about quarterback controversy. He thinks he has done enough to be the guy, and I'm sure with a full offseason under his belt as the starter, he thinks he will continue to be the guy. I ask you, does Bailey Zappi have a leg to stand on? Does he have a right to be upset at the idea of what the Patriots do? 802 585-3026. For me, I think Bailey Zappi is three things. I think Bailey Zappi is, eh, we'll say two things. I think Bailey Zappi is confident. I also think in this regard, Bailey Zappi is delusional. Right? I appreciate Bailey Zappi's confidence. I want a guy who is competitive. I want a guy who's not happy being the backup. I want a guy 
who gives it his all on the field, who gives it it all on Sunday, who gives it his all during the week, who loves his teammates, who battles for his teammates, who supports his teammates, who defends his teammates. I want a guy who's competitive, who cares about the organization, who wants to get better, and who wants to take ownership. Right? We talk about guys who don't want to, who, who cower in big moments. We talk about guys who don't want the ball in their hands at the end of the game. We talk about the guy who wants, who, who wants to rely on others. That doesn't appear to be Bailey Zappi. I give him a lot of credit for that. He is a guy who has confidence in his ability, who has confidence in his resume, who has confidence in what he believes he can do. I want him to want that job. I want him to think he deserves that job. That said, he's also delusional. He does not have a leg to stand on here. He has to be smart enough to know that the New England Patriots are in what you hope is a a once-a-decade spot picking inside the top five. Look, the Patriots could pick number – they could get the number two overall pick out of this weekend if things break their way. They could end up with pick number five, pick number six. But the bottom line is this, the New England Patriots do not want to be picking inside the top ten again for a very long time. Bailey Zappi has to understand that the New England Patriots are in an unenviable position of picking that high, but a special position of picking that high. They have – to take advantage of it. And if he thinks they shouldn't use it, then he just doesn't want to see what's in front of him. Because he knows, just like I know, that the list of quarterbacks who become franchise guys from his position, it's not very high. Bailey Zappi was a fourth-round pick, right? I'm off the top of my head here. I'm sure there are others in NFL history. Russell Wilson was a third-round pick at a great decade-long run as a starter, right? It's hard to do. It's not likely for Zappi to be that guy. Kirk Cousins was a fourth-round pick. Tom Brady was a sixth-round pick. Dak Prescott was a fourth-round pick. There are guys that come from Zappi's spot and make it his starters. But he's got to know that when we talk about the franchise guys, Joe Burrow was number one. Trevor Lawrence was number one. Andrew Luck was number one. Peyton Manning was number one. Uh, John Elway was number one. He's got to know that Patrick Mahomes was in the top 12 or so. He's got to know that Josh Allen was in the top 10. When teams get to those spots, they generally take advantage of it. And that's generally the smart way of doing NFL business. Right? You don't want to be bad enough to be picking in the top five. But if you are, you got to take advantage of that situation. you got to get the quarterback if you don't have one already. Now, the Chicago Bears may have one in Justin Fields. The Cardinals may have one in Kyler Murray. They may not need to take advantage of it that way. But the New England Patriots, they're going to. Right? We're going to... We're going to do our draft stuff as we move forward here in the next couple of months. Depending on exactly where the Pats finish, maybe I'll have a different opinion. But right now where the Pats are, I think it's got to be quarterback. And no matter how bad Bailey Zappi wants the job, then like it doesn't matter to me how bad he wants it. I asked Freddie Coleman about this as well. I said, Freddie, how do you view Zappi at this point, confident or delusional? All of the above, what you just mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> what you just mentioned, Bill, he's happy to be honest with you. And when you're a competitor, you want people to believe in you when you believe in yourself. So I like that from Bailey Zappi as far as that goes. But let's be, let's keep it 100 here. He is a career backup at best. He's a guy that can come in and be a spot starter here and there. 
if the starting quarterback is injured and you have a chance to bring him in or if you want to play him in the situation as mop-up duty. But no one looks at Billy Zappi and says, we can build a team around him. And there's no reason to believe that because he's not shown any reason why you could look at him and say, he's only going to get better and better and better if you make him a starting quarterback. I don't see that from Billy Zappi. But if I'm Billy Zappi, I'm defending my position. I'm, I'm defending my position. I get where he's coming from. He wants the job. He thinks he's earned it. But he's got to be smart enough to realize that when your organization is in this spot, they're going to have to take advantage of it. 802-585-3026. Really, for me, at that point, it becomes, if I'm Bailey Zappi, how do I handle things? Because I know what I'd want to do. If I were Bailey Zappi, I would want to be a starter. I would want to go and ask for a trade. I would want to go and say, hey, there's going to be an opening in Denver. There's going to be an opening in this place or in that place. Let me be the guy. That's what I'd want. I don't know if Bailey Zappi wants to go down that route. I don't know what his agent will advise him to do. I don't know if he'll want to look bad or take the PR hit or look like a guy who's, you know, a malcontent or unhappy or whatever, right? Optically, it's not the best idea for Bailey Zappi, I'm sure, to go and be asking for trades and be demanding out of town. Like, hey, buddy, you were a fourth-round pick. You're lucky to even have the playing time that you have. But if I were Bailey Zappi, that's what I'd want to do. I'd want to be... You know, if they draft a quarterback, I'd want to be going right into Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, or whoever's office that'll listen, and whoever's the head coach at the time, and say, look, I gave you my all. You've screwed me. Now I want out. That's what I'd want to do. I don't know that he'll be able to do it, but that's what I'd want. It's the Brady Farkas Show here on DEV. Patriots and Jets coming up on Sunday. What am I looking for in that game? I mean, number one, it's early in the week. I told you yesterday, I'm really going to watch Matthew Slater, right? I'm going to appreciate Matthew Slater and potentially his final game in the New England Patriots uniform, his final game maybe ever in the NFL. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to appreciate that. I'm going to enjoy watching him play. As for what else I'm going to watch for, I just want to see how the guys react to Bill Belichick because – the guys know what's going on, right? I've heard Zappi talk about it. I've heard Jelani Tavai talk about it. Guys know that this could be it for Belichick. Do they rally around him? Do they try to hoist him on their shoulders if they win? Do they Are they going over and giving him a hug after every play? Are they trying to soak in what may be, be the last minute? Like the, the players will tell you at least what the vibe in the room is with how they act on Sunday, right? Are they, you know, hugging Bill Belichick as the teacher that they don't want to move on from? when the, you're getting ready to, to, to go on summer vacation, or are they saying, good riddance, I can't wait to get to the next grade? Be interested just seeing how the players act and how the players react. I'm sure some of the veterans, David Andrews, Slater, Jabril Peppers, if he plays, I think those guys will embrace Belichick no matter what. How's everybody else look? To find out. I think that's something. I'll be interested in some of the off-field stuff, some of the peripheral stuff on Sunday. Red Sox made a couple of big moves. We talked a lot about it yesterday, right? Big trade of Chris Sale, big acquisition of Lucas Giolito. We'll talk about all of it from every angle, looking at the Red Sox with Tom Karen, our Sox insider over at Nesson, who's with us next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Texter says, I am most interested to see the fan reaction to what is most likely a goodbye to Belichick until the Ring of Honor stuff. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think the reaction to Belichick on Sunday should be completely appreciative. Like, if you boo Bill Belichick on Sunday 
or you have a sign that runs him out of town, you're just doing it wrong as far as I'm concerned. You can want the organization to move forward. You can want the organization to move in a different direction. You can crave offensive innovation. You can want someone younger. I think that's all fair, and that's all fine, and I largely agree with you on a lot of that stuff. But just because you want that and would be happy with that doesn't mean you have to to throw dirt on the guy as he's out the door. Bill Belichick's brought a lot of happiness to the region. He's brought a lot of happiness to people in that stadium, to people who go to games. He's given lifetimes worth of memories to. You should be appreciative of that. You know, yes, there's time to dissect the gruffness with the press and how he's handled this guy's contract or that guy's contract and what Asante Samuel doesn't like about him and all that stuff. We'll get to all of that if and when Bill Belichick is gone. When you unpack his legacy, that's all fair to discuss. But on Sunday, the fan reaction should be 100% positive and 100% appreciative. Because if he is gone, you got to find a way to say thank you before the Ring of Honor stuff in the next handful of years. Got to find a way to say thank you. Got to be appreciative for what Bill Belichick did because it has been quite a ride. The, The last week of Red Sox news has been quite a ride. Let's go out. To the phone line now and bring in our guy Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider at Nesson. A lot of stuff to get to, right? Chris Sale trade, Vaughn Grissom acquisition, Lucas Giolito signing. TC is on the phone with us now. TC, appreciate you uh, being with us. Let me be what? Well, I don't know. What I hope is the last to wish you Happy New Year. Thank you. Well, yeah, I think you get like two weeks. You know, that's sort of my. You, you get you start. By, by the 14th, 15th, by like Martin Luther King weekend, you better not be wishing me a happy new year. But the first few days, you get it. So happy new year to you as well. We talked about this yesterday. I will go mid-month if I haven't seen you yet. So, like, I just wished you happy new year so we're done. But if I don't see somebody until the 13th, mm-hmm. I will still wish them happy new year. See, that's it. Yeah, and I think that's a good rule. I think that to me that's like somebody who rips off six sneezes in a row. You don't say bless you or gesundheit six <laughs> times. I'll get you once. Maybe twice because I forgot the first one. Or if I come in on your sixth, I'll I'll say it on your sixth. But yeah, not every time. Uh, and so we're good. We wished each other a happy 2024. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Red Sox who have made some waves at the end of 2023 here. A couple of big moves. Let's kind of talk about them in pieces. Let's talk about the Chris Sale trade first. Um, the way I look at this is I love the upside of Grissom. I love the fact that he fills second base. I ultimately think it's great for the Red Sox long-term, both financially and player-wise. I think it makes the Red Sox worse in 2023 because it adds more chaos to an already unstable rotation. Do you, or for 2024, I should say, do you see it the same way I do? Good long-term, not great for this year immediately. Yeah, I, I guess I do, but I'm I'm still viewing this as incomplete uh, because I do think this sets up other moves, and I assume they will be for pitching. But again, as presently constructed, right, they were better with pitching than they were with infield. Now, you traded a guy who's probably going to be here one more year, a guy who has had all kinds of trouble staying on the mound. We, we know the injury history. We know what Chris Sale did. Uh, when he was healthy, but that, it's been a long time since he was healthy, right? So they were able to flip him to address a need, second base. They, they went through like a dozen different people at second base over the last two years. And Grissom's exciting. The, the guy hit 330 in the minors last year. There's some questions. He struggled against the changeup as a hitter. He chases a lot of pitches. He'll have to get that under control. And his defense at shortstop was not good. Now, it should be a lot better at second base. So we'll see how that plays out. But this guy's your second baseman. Craig Breslow said it the other night. 
So, so that deal makes sense because it's helping you longer term. I've said this to you. I've said it a million times. I, I think 2025 is when the Red Sox expect to be a contender. Doesn't mean you can't be a playoff team in 2024 with the expanded wild card. So if they can add pitching beyond Giolito, who we'll get to in a moment, then I think this is a good move. If they don't, then yeah, right now, as presently constructed, they are a sub-500 team. Do you, you talk about the acquisition of Grissom setting up other moves. Do you think this opens the door for them to trade Marcelo Meyer? Do you think this opens the door for them to trade Nick York? Some of those guys they've been hoarding in the middle infield ranks. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to trade Marcelo Meyer, you better be getting a stud pitcher with years of control ahead of you. So I... I would not think Meyer is a guy you move, but Nick York suddenly becomes, you know, kind of superfluous, doesn't he? I mean, if, if Grissom's your second baseman, Meyer's the other infield coming up. Uh, I, I don't know that York uh, really fits into long term. So I think suddenly you've got some surplus talent uh, prospects that you can move, York being one of them. Uh, maybe Jaron Duran, if you're going to go with, say, Don Rafaela or vice versa, if you want to stick with Duran, Rafaela is a guy who could now move, especially with Roman Anthony moving his way up. Uh, you know, Will Abreu could be a guy. I really like him, but he could be a guy you include in the deal. So suddenly it feels like they've got the prospect capital to go out and make a deal, you know, whether it's a Lazardo from Miami, whatever they, you know, you figure out the team that's looking to shed payroll. They, now have the prospects in hand that they can go make a deal like that. I know they can't because of the financial implications of it, but if you gave the Red Sox truth serum, do you think they'd prefer to move story? We've heard so much about, you know, shedding salary. Would they rather keep Meyer, York, and Grissom and move story if they could? That's a great question, and I, I don't know the answer to it. If I were the Red Sox, what I'd like to do is get a year of healthy Trevor Story. Give me Story in 2024 in a Red Sox uniform, playing every day at shortstop, exceptional defense, hopefully finding his swing again where he can use Fenway Park to his advantage and launch the balls over that monster and then trade him, either at the deadline or after the season. The value is going to be a lot higher if we see a healthy Trevor Story. And then, again, this is assuming Marcelo Meyer is healthy and ready to step in. And now you talk about beginning in 2025, Meyer – and probably Grissom are the infield of the future. TC, I have to check it, and I will do so in a second. But doesn't Story, does Story have an opt-out after year three? So if he plays great, he's likely to opt-out anyways. I just can't remember if it's year three or year four. But he does have an opt-out in there. Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure off the top of my head. You're right. I know there was one in there. I don't know when it was. Uh, and that would obviously factor into what you could get for him if somebody thought he was going to opt out, but I do think that, you know, right now you, I mean, what would you get enough for Trevor story? I mean, I just don't know. Uh, no, I just you'd looked be it selling. up while we were talking and it's t- after 2025. So okay. you do have, you know, you have another year. So if he has a good, a good year this year, or again, maybe you do it at the trade deadline. If Meyer is working his way up to AAA and you think he's ready to go. Uh, I, I just think right now, Marcelo Meyer isn't ready to be a shortstop. Trading away Trevor Story would open up a whole other issue for the start of this year. And it would really kind of be kicking the can down the road for 2025 in earnest. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider at Nesson with us here in the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Let's move over to Giolito. So the way I view this one is 
The reason why the Chris Sale acquisition for the Braves, I think, is so good is because Chris Sale is being brought in to be the number four or the number five, and he's essentially a lottery ticket. And if he works out, they're a World Series favorite. And if he doesn't work out, they're still the same Braves team that won 100 games last year. Giolito, I kind of view similarly. If he was brought in to be the Red Sox four or five, I would love the move. If he's being brought in to be the Red Sox number one, I'm thinking – that's a whole lot of uncertainty, and you're putting a whole lot of eggs in a basket. I don't know if it's going to come to fruition. How do you view that move? Yeah, he's not a number one. He's not. And and I'm bullish on this deal. I like Giolito. He's a guy I wanted them to get. I think I think the upside is there. Uh, he's a guy who's uh, he's a cerebral guy who, who's made a lot of adjustments over the course of his career. And after, I mean, listen, he was not good in 2022. Okay, but really did seem to come back. I know we're all talking about his horrific year last year, 41 home runs, the most in the American League. But when he got traded from the White Sox, the only major league team he'd really known, uh, after six-plus years of, of time with the White Sox, he was at a 3.79 ERA with 20 home runs and 21 starts, right in his you know normal average for home runs. A little bit on the upside, but not at all. He gave up 21 home runs in his final 10 starts. Okay, now he got traded, which I'm sure came as a shock. He also got traded, I think it was within 10 days of a divorce. Uh, these guys are human. Okay, let's let's see if that was maybe what set him off the rails. And then he was part of that really weird Angels fire sale where they waived and released five guys to get back onto the payroll. And he was dumped and went to Cleveland. He was awful in Cleveland. So let's see what he does when he comes back here. But back to your original point, not a number one. Maybe a number two, if he can regain who he was a couple of years ago, who he was in the first half last year. Again, four months into the season, he was still throwing a 3.79 with the White Sox in the American League. So if he can do that, he's a number two, number three, which is great, which means they still got to be in the market for a number one. I was listening to Tony Maserati yesterday at 98.5, the sports hub, who, who did work at Nesson in the 2022 season. He said something interesting. He said, you know, he thinks that the Rays way has infected baseball and that people think they can just kind of skirt the payroll, sneak into the playoffs and maybe get hot. Do you think it's that or do you think the extra wild card team is actually working against baseball in terms of where these teams think, look, I, I don't have to win 102 games to guarantee myself a playoff berth. I can win 85 and sneak into that seven spot and see what happens. Yeah, Arizona. Yeah, Arizona did it this year, right? I mean, Arizona was a, a team with a losing record a year before, got in the playoffs with a, with a pretty good second half, and then made it all the way to the World Series. Uh, that's the way. I mean, baseball is more like the other sports now, where it's more about getting into the postseason, and it's a, you know, it's a, the tournament, as you could start calling it in <laughs> baseball, you know, has become a longer grinded out kind of affair, right? How many number one teams lost in the first or second round last year? Everybody but Houston, right? Houston was the only favorite to make it through and uh, around, and, and they didn't make it all the way. So, you know, I, I get it. Listen, there's a lot of talk, at Chris, the Chris Cotillo report that the team is trying to shed payroll mm-hmm. if they're going to go after their top free agents. I get it. And as a Red Sox fan, it's hard to take when you've been used to them spending amongst the most in baseball. But I also understand that if I owned a team, how many big payroll teams made it through last year? None of them. Texas and Arizona were in the World Series. And Texas spent some money, so give them credit. I I give Texas credit for spending money. To me now, baseball isn't about how much you spend. It's about how wisely you spend it. 
uh, the Chris Sale end of the Chris Sale chapter in Boston is interesting, right? Because it ultimately his signing ultimately cost Dave Dombrowski his job, and probably directly impacted Heim Bloom losing his job, right? Because that contract weighed this franchise down over the last five years, and uh, you know I, I'm sure that that is still something that the the ownership is smarting from that they don't want to be repeated. It's why the short-term deal for Giolito is one thing. It's why they, in the end, I'm sure we're nowhere near what Yamamoto got over 12 years, let alone Otani. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, can you get a Blake Snell or a Jordan Montgomery or Imanaga for either less money or shorter years? Because the Giolito deal, a lot of people said, wow, that's a lot of money to Giolito. But it's not long-term. You're not anchoring yourself down. I think the team is willing to spend short-term money, but it is the Chris Sale contract that they're looking to avoid going forward. TC, I'll get you out of here on this. I want to go back to Giolito for a second because I heard uh, Harold Reynolds say this on MLB Network yesterday, and uh, it, it just kind of raised my antennas. I know it's a different pitching group, and Dave Bush isn't here, and now Bailey's here and Breslow's here, but he said Giolito, he wonders if he could maybe be this year's Michael Waka for them. Mm-hmm. A guy who comes in, fastball change up, right-handed, and figures out a way to use Fenway to his advantage. Is that a fair comparison or apples and oranges because we got different people here now? No, I, I think it could be. In fact, one of the things the Red Sox, and I will say this, not just the Red Sox, but people I talk to around baseball, outside the Red Sox, they actually do believe that the trio of Craig Breslow, who really overhauled the pitching uh, apparatus for the Cubs, uh, uh, Andrew Bailey, who was considered one of the best hands-on uh, pitching coaches in the game last year, and Justin Willard, who's coming in from Minnesota, who's the new director of pitching and, and got rave reviews for his ability to optimize stuff in the Twins' uh, pitching department, that those three together – are expected to really help pitchers harness their potential. And I think that is a great what, – what Harold Reynolds is saying, I think, is spot on with what the Red Sox think they can do. Help this pitcher regain the fastball that really didn't play over the last year or two. Still had the velocity, but but he no longer was was getting the results. The changeup was a really good pitch for him and has really not been as good a pitch the last couple of years. Can they help him regain that? Can they help Nick Pavetta? harness the stuff like he did and and at the end of the year last year and and become a consistent starter can he help brian bayo take the next step all these young relievers they're bringing in that we've uh yeah, the trades they've made and the rule five maneuvering they did to bring in young depth pitchers can this pitching department help these guys reshape some of their pitches change their arm slots you know, the, the, the little things that Craig Breslow, Breslow did as a pitcher when he was with the Red Sox, he, you know, he was one of the first guys to buy the Rapsodo and TrackMan technology and set it up in his home and, and learn how to change pressure points and arm slots and start shaping pitches before anybody talked about that. Can, can, can the trio of, of Breslow and Bailey and Willard help optimize these pitchers? We'll see. Uh, and, and that's their hope. That's why they think they can be better than people think they are. But for all of that, you still got to have the horses, and they still need a guy at the top of that rotation. Tom Karen, Sox Insider over at Nesson TC. Much appreciated. We'll catch up in seven days. We'll see what the Red Sox have done uh, done by next week's talk. Thanks, Brady. Appreciate it. Absolutely. There goes Tom Karen, our Red Sox Insider over at Nesson. A lot of stuff there um, to, to break down. I'll say this right off the top. 
I really do think the Red Sox would like to move off Trevor Story. Now, they can't, right? They absolutely can't. Nobody will take Trevor Story at this point. But I absolutely think they wish they could do it. For an organization that wants to get younger, that wants to get more athletic, that would like to keep its prospects in a perfect world, that would like to, to shed payroll, they would love to get rid of Trevor Story. Now, you can't because of the financial aspect of things, right? Like, i got to pull up Story's exact deal, right? He signed a couple years ago for six years and $140 million. He's already been through two of those years at this point. So he's got four years left. Here's how the deal breaks down. Story has two more years left on the deal and then has an opt-out and then has uh, two more years left in 26 and 27. So, like, let's break it down here. Story's coming off an awful year. So if you traded him now, he's got four years and $90 million left. You'd be selling massively low. Nobody would want that contract. So you can't move him now. To TC's point, let's say he's having a great year this year, and you want to move him at the deadline. Does anybody really want to acquire him? Because if he's having a great year, well, they have him for a year and a half. And in a year and a half, he can opt out and go to free agency. So you've given up a bunch for a guy who's a year and a half rental. If Trevor Story is awful next year, you're going to be on the hook for the remaining three years of the deal that he's never going to opt out of. So it's like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. They would want to move him. They're not going to be able to. Their best bet, honestly, is that Story just plays great the next two years. He helps this team play really well, helps this team you know, is part of this team's batting order, right in the middle of the order, is excellent, is an all-star, is the guy they paid for, and then he opts out. And after 2025, they can really turn it over to Grissom, to Meyer, and if they've still got Meyer, and they can shed stories money, and they could have more money available to them. That, that's like their best-case scenario here. Texter says, the contract has not paid off with Story. Had they kept Hanley instead, maybe it's a different story. Not true. Hanley was playing first base, and Hanley was awful by the end. And they're also years apart. Like, Hanley, they got rid of Hanley in, like, 2017. Like, my first season covering the team, they got rid of Hanley. Maybe even 2016, right after I got here. 2017, I think, like, midseason. Like, him and Story, they're not even close to each other. Joe over in Richmond says, this is interesting. Says, as a Braves fan, I'm really disappointed to have gotten rid of Von Grissom. I feel like he's going to be uh, one of the guys. He's got speed. He could develop his power. I think Sale is too much of an injury risk. I bet he doesn't make 10 starts for the Braves. Let's start. Look, Joe, let me talk you off the ledge about this one. Moving off of Von Grissom is okay for the Braves. Where exactly is Von Grissom going to play? They decided he's not a shortstop. Well, they've got Matt Olson at first base. They don't need to play him there. They've got Ozzie Albies at second base. They don't need to play him there. They've got Austin Riley at third base. They don't need to play him there. They've decided he's not a shortstop, and they don't want to play him there. They've got Ronald Acuna Jr. and, Mar- and uh, Michael Harris in the outfield, and then Marcelo Zuna, who you know I'm not crazy about, but had a very good year last year. They have all-stars at every position. They're a World Series favorite. They don't need a 22-year-old Vaughn Grissom there, and I'm pretty sure – that they've got other guys in the pipeline that could come and backfill spots if any of those guys were gone, right, if any of those guys were gone. Um, so I don't think the Braves really have a spot for 
Vaughn Grissom. As for the Braves acquiring Sale, look, they're paying him $10 million. Right? He's a one-year $10 million lottery ticket. Frankie Montas, who missed all of last season except for 1.1 innings, just signed a $6 million, $16 million deal with the Reds. Okay, A guy who missed the last year and a half got a $16 million deal. Chris Sale is getting a $10 million deal. He's a lottery ticket. If he's great, he's the best fit, best fit starter in the league. If he's not great or he is injured, the Braves are still the same 100-plus win team that they were a year ago. So they're... They're perfectly fine, I think, going after Sale. If he he doesn't have to be a certainty for them, he could be a hope for them. And if he hits, awesome. If he doesn't hit, they're still excellent. Tex says, "I don't mean Hanley, I mean Xander Bogarts." Well, that's fair. I don't know how things would have worked out if they had kept Xander. If they had committed to Xander long term, I'm not sure. Um, all right, more Red Sox stuff to get to. I want to talk about that Tony Maserati thing here about kind of how baseball has changed from a spending perspective and how the Red Sox view it. UVM with a win yesterday over uh, Brown. I want to talk about and the Celtics come up short in a tough game against Oklahoma City. We'll get all of it under our belt before we get over to high school basketball coming up at 645. You're listening to the Brittany Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brittany Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. High school basketball, U32 and Lamoille on the boys' side. Brent Curtis will be on the call coming up about 15 minutes from now. Good talk with Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. And, Danny, I want to take my shot at reacting to what Tony Maserati had to say. Tony Maserati over at 98.5, the sports hub in Boston, was talking about the Red Sox and talking about kind of how they do business now. Interesting comments here, Danny. Let's play this. Yeah, look, I think that's part of it. I, I think that, look, the, the, the success of the Rays, I think, has infected everybody because there is this attitude now, and it's not just in Boston, it's in a lot of places that, not every place, but a lot of places that you can patch it together, contend and get into the playoffs, and then maybe catch lightning in a bottle and win that way. And I still think there is a significant history that shows the best way to win is to spend you know, certainly you have to draft and develop. That's always been true in any era. But I think that at some point you take it to an extreme and it goes a little bit too far. And look, just quickly on that 2018 team, and I understand what you're saying, but that team ranked number one in the majors in payroll. I think it's interesting about why baseball has gone the way it has. And, and I think Tony's right. Like we all have consternation about the Red Sox. It's not just the Red Sox. I don't, the Rays get. I think unfairly dumped on for being the reason why, why baseball teams operate the way they do financially. I don't think it's all the race. I think it's been, I think there's two things at play here. Over the last 15 years or so, last 10 years, a lot of teams have won with homegrown course, right? A lot of teams have won World Series operating under the premise that you need to draft and develop and trade for young players and you need to have guys come up through your system. And when you have a team of guys like that, they are cheaper, they are younger, they are more athletic, and then you can spend your resources wisely and go and get true supplements to your roster rather than have your entire team be built by free agency, right? Like, I'm, I'm throwing things off the top of my head here. Kansas City Royals won the World Series. 
right? On that roster, homegrown player Mike Moustakis, homegrown player Eric Hosmer, homegrown player uh, Alex Gordon, homegrown player eh, acquired young, maybe even a homegrown player, Lorenzo Cain, key on that team, right? You had a bullpen in which you had Greg Holland and Wade Davis, so I don't think it was developed there. What well, was brought in at a young, you know, at a younger age there or a rebuilt age, as I'm remembering correctly. And then you're able to trade for a Johnny Cueto, right? And the Royals go and win the World Series. The Cubs, Javi Baez, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant. That is a homegrown core. And with that homegrown core, you're able to be inexpensive at a lot of places. And then you can go sign a John Lester, a Jason Hayward. You can have enough prospect capital built up and payroll flexibility to go trade for that year Araldis Chapman in their case. The Houston Astros win it with Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa and Dallas Keuchel and Lance McCullers and all of these guys who are homegrown players, right? Jose Altuve. And then George Springer. And they're okay then moving on from some of these guys. And they just keep replenishing it with Chaz McCormick and Jordan Alvarez and Framber Valdez. Okay, these guys are homegrown players. They're cheap. They're inexpensive. Those are the same word. Cheap. They're cheap and affordable. And then they can go out and spend on the Jose Abreu type. Right? So a lot of baseball teams have seen the success of winning with a young homegrown core. So people think, wow, we can win and we don't have to spend as much money? Woohoo! I like that idea. That helps us on both fronts. So a lot of teams are trying to recreate that. Don't blame the Rays. The Rays actually haven't won the World Series. Well, they have been consistently good. They've never won the World Series, right? Royals did it. Cubs did it that way. Yeah, the Rangers went out and spent a lot this year. They did, right? Spent on DeGrom. Go acquire Montgomery, spend on Seager, spend on Simeon. So you can still win by spending big. Yankees haven't won a World Series since 09. Okay? Philly spent big, got to the World Series, didn't win it. Padres spent big, didn't even make the playoffs. So people, the Mets spent huge, finished in fourth place. So people are seeing that, hey, big spending teams aren't winning. Little spending teams are. Prospect development teams are winning. And front offices say, hey, I want to win but I'd love to win cheaper. So let's just try to do what those teams are doing. I think that's the number one thing that's impacting baseball. Number two is, I think, the expanded playoffs. And there is a trade-off here. When baseball went and expanded its playoffs to, what is it, six teams now? I'm trying to think. It's wild card. Six teams, I think, right? Yeah, six teams in each league make the playoffs. When baseball went and did that, there was a lot of excitement that was brought, right? Down to the wire, we had a bunch of teams still in it, right? Down to the wire, you had stadiums getting sold out because teams are battling for playoff spots. That is great for the sport. It's great for the sport for the fans because, look, it's not fun being a fan of your team's out of it by June 1st. If your team can kind of hover around 500 and be involved most of the year, you're pretty happy. You're happy as a fan. The team is happy because you're coming out to the ballpark. They're making money. The networks are happy because people are still watching. So when you have that, everybody's happy. But what you also have is this feeling like, you know what, you don't have to be elite to 
playoffs anymore. When only four teams made the playoffs, right, when you had three division winners and a wild card, guess what? You, it wasn't how can we build a team that can win 85 games. It was how can we build a team that needs to win 95 games because that's what you had to do to assure yourself a playoff spot. And when you had to win 95 games, you had to do everything you could to get there, and that included flexing financial muscle. But now it's not about winning 95 games because it's a much lower threshold of getting into the playoffs. So when it is a lower threshold, why is a team going to go out of its way to spend massively when all they need to do, hey, let's win 86. And if we win 86, we got a really good chance of getting there. And if we get, if we get there, then hell, anything can happen. So I don't, you know, Tony says, oh, the Rays have infected baseball. It's not the Rays. It's the teams that have won this cheap and inexpensive way. And it's the league that now says you don't have to be elite to get to the playoffs. And if you just get in, then anything can happen. I'm going to talk to Buster only about this tomorrow. I don't know that Buster is going to be on live, but I am going to ask him this kind of question. So we'll talk about that with Buster tomorrow. Let's move over to a UVM men's basketball. We got just a couple of minutes left. Danny, what time do I need to what time do we need to end this show today? About 46:42, so I got about 4 minutes left, is that right? Sounds about right. Okay. So we got a couple minutes left. UVM men's basketball beats Brown yesterday. Final score was 71 to 70. I listened to some of the first half. I watched the entirety of the second half. UVM was down 17 at one point in this game. Came back and won it by a point. How did they win it? Well, O'Leary Iofalier hit a couple of big shots late, had a big three, had a shot in the lane, had a big block on defense, and then T.J. Long hits eventually what is the game-winning shot with, you know, 20 seconds or so to play. It's a three that gets him up 71-70. A couple things to like in this game, right? Just kind of gripping and ripping on some takeaways. T.J. Long is a big shot maker, right? He didn't shoot it that well yesterday. He only had, I want to say, 11 points. He found a way to hit the biggest shot when they needed it. Give him credit for that. Illyrio Folier played the game we finally wanted him to play. Man, very, very impressive. He had double figures, 11 points. He took over late offensively and defensively. That's what this team wants to see from him moving forward. Does he need to get 11 every night? No. But the ability, the confidence to to shoot to three late, to take a big shot when you're down. I think the team was down, you know, five or six or so to keep a game close inside three minutes to play defensively to get a big block, to challenge shots on the interior. Man, that was huge stuff. Give him credit for that. Matt Verretto had 16 in the first half. Did not score in the second half, but he had 16 in the first half. Give him credit for that. T.J. Hurley, second half, had a huge three. Did a good job continuing to use his body to get inside the lane and make things happen. What didn't I like? Man, the 70 points allowed again against a Brown team that was 4-10, and 10, a Brown team that was 301st in the nation coming into that game in three-point shooting percentage. Brown was all over the perimeter. I don't have the numbers in front of me. They hit a bunch of threes last night. They were 301st in the nation coming into that game, and they hit a bunch of threes on you. That cannot happen. A John Becker team is supposed to be predicated on defense, and we have talked far too many times about this team giving up 68, 70, 74 points. Cannot happen. Okay, is Brown better than what they'll see in the America East? Probably some of it, but not immensely better. UVM can't be giving up 70 points to New Hampshire and 70 points to Maine and 70 points to these. Can't do it. I want UVM to win the league again. I want UVM to go back to the NCAA tournament. They've got to be a team that can lock lock you down defensively. I want to see UVM win these games. Look, Brown I love to 71. 
Brown was 9 of 15, right? That's 66% from three. 66% from three, that's unacceptable. And, yeah, maybe a team gets hot once in a while, but we have seen teams do this against UVM where they're giving up too many points, right? I want to see UVM score 71. I love that. I want to see him win games 71-58. I want to see them holding teams in the 50s like teams in the past didn't happen yesterday. Now, they won this game without Shamir Bogues. It should be noted, you won this game without your best overall player, a guy who is your best defender, a guy who is your point guard. You found a way to gut it out, but you got down 17. Can't have that either. Conference play starts Saturday against Maine. That game, uh, I believe, is at 2 o'clock. So see what happens there in the opener. Celtics lose yesterday by four. I admittedly did not watch almost any of this game. Watched the last minute or so as Shea, uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander's hitting free throws to ice the game. 127-123 was the final in that one. Sees 23-7 and seven now, I believe, is their record on the year. Or no, 27-6, I think, is the record on the year. Danny can correct me on that. I know he's uh, getting Brent Curtis ready for high school basketball. I think Celtics 27-6. and six. Still the best record in the NBA. I don't like that a couple of these test games, these benchmark games, they haven't won. I know it's the regular season. I know it doesn't mean as much, but you lost on the road against Golden State. You lost on the road against OKC. Both these teams are good. I want to see the Celtics prove they're the best team. They've got a stretch next week where they've got, uh, was it, they got Indiana twice here this weekend. They've got Milwaukee next week. They got Minnesota next week. Next week's going to be a benchmark week. I want to see if they can pass the test because so far they haven't passed a few of them. Right? Am I worried? No. Am I annoyed that they can't pass these tests? A little bit. Talk about it more tomorrow. Brady Farkas show back at it tomorrow from 530 until 645. High school basketball is next. Go download the podcast. Thanks to Danny. Thanks to TC. Thanks to Freddie. See you tomorrow on DEV.